Again, could you put that second to the last slide up on that last song? I love those words right there. Look at that, Jesus, O Holy One. You understand when you see those words, O Holy One, the words that follow are actually unbelievable for sinners to be able to sing. O Holy One, I sing to you forgiven. That's amazing. And when you really grasp how amazing that is, the next line is going to make more sense. Savior, I'm overcome with your great love for me. One of the reasons why we gather week after week and open up God's word and try to learn from him is to remind ourselves of who we are, who he is, what he's done for us. And I hope that increasingly in your life, you leave with a sense of being overcome by this. That's why we open up our Bibles on a daily basis to read and learn about who God is, who we are, what he's done for us, and to be overcome by that. So oftentimes salvation can become commonplace for us. We just live in the midst of, yes, yeah, the way it's been, and got saved when I was seven, you know, whatever it might be for you, and just been slogging along all these years, and oh, salvation, when it's amazing. John Piper in his book, um, his book, his book, Brother, uh, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, I think is the name of the book. He has a chapter in there that says, we've got to understand that we weren't just, you know, just saved by someone throwing us a life preserver. I think I talked about that last week. But we were dead on the bottom of the ocean. But John Piper says, we were hanging over the abyss of hell, doomed to fall in. That was our only, that was our only trajectory, was to fall into that abyss of hell. And God reached in, and he saved us out of that. That will make you become overcome by his goodness and his mercy to us. Are you overcome by that today? I mean, let's become increasingly overcome by what he's done for us. Okay, let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And while you're doing that, I also want you to find some money. Find some money somewhere. Piece of money. If you don't have any, I forgot my wallet. If you don't have any money, grab a credit card. Everyone, get a piece of money in your hands because I want you to be holding on to a piece of money or a credit card, whatever it is that represents money in your wallet, your purse, wherever. If your children are around you, give them a quarter, give them something and let them have it. Don't take it back at the end of the service. Just give it to them. Let them have it. But I want everyone to put Whatever that is, in your open Bible, if you have an electronic Bible, just stick it right on top of that. We're going to be using that at the end of our service today. Everybody got some money? Show me your money. Show me you got something in your hand. Everybody, all right. Joni, can I have some money too? <laughs> this was not planned. It's not the way it always happens at our household, but uh, yeah. it's a funny joke, isn't it, for right now? It just happened to work out this way this morning. <laughs> All right, the title of the message is this this morning, as we come to Luke chapter 16, faithfulness with an eye to the kingdom. In other words, as we live in this world, daily experiences, whatever we might be going through, the Lord is calling us to faithfulness with an eye on that day that he is going to be coming back. When our son, Drew, was probably about eight or nine years old, we used to play basketball, actually for years, but this particular story when he was about eight or nine 
We used to play basketball on, in the front of our house. We had a basketball goal out in the street. We live on a cul-de-sac, and so it was very easy to play basketball out there. And we would just play every single day. I mean, nonstop. That's all we did was basketball. Everybody knew it. Cars drew, drove slowly down the street because they knew that man and his son were going to be out there again blocking the street. Well, one day we were resting, and we were sitting on the side of the road with one of his friends. And his friend lived down the road and had, their family had everything. I mean, one time I was down in this kid's um, room, and underneath his bed, he had every pair of Michael Jordan Nike basketball shoes that you could imagine. Now, here's, here's the deal with these shoes, though. He never wore them. He just had them. And he would take my son down there and pull them out and show them. My son didn't have one of them. And he would just pull them all out and show that they were all his. Now, my son thought, wow, this is like the best world possible to live in. I bet you he thought numerous times, I wish I could be Adrian. Well, in fact, they had so much stuff that one day his dad came driving down the road. I believe it was a brand new Cadillac. And he rolled the window down, you know, tinted windows, just rolled them down and gave me a little wave. And, and we began talking. He goes, yeah, going to Vegas this weekend, and I just wanted a new ride. I was like, oh, okay. Well, he had that car for about a week. I mean, that was the lifestyle that they lived. Well, one day they came driving on the road, and one of the cars they had for about a week was a Hummer. So Andrew and I are sitting on the side of the road, and comes the Hummer, and Andrew says, Daddy, I wish we had enough money to have a Hummer. <laughs> and I stopped for just a moment because I'm thinking in my mind, well, we could buy a Hummer. So what am I going to say to Andrew next? And so I said to Andrew, well, Andrew, we, we could own a Hummer. But your mom and I have made a decision to use the money that we have different than that. Now, that ended up being a very long discussion with an eight- or nine-year-old that thought a Hummer was everything in the world. Why would you not use the money that you had? If you had enough money, why would you not have every pair of Michael Jordans underneath your um, um, bed? And why would you not drive in a Hummer? It was a very interesting conversation. And we've had to have a number of those with our children throughout the years. Now, why was I having that conversation with him? Because Joni and I, we have certain values that direct us in how we're going to use our money. Now, I want you to know that wasn't always true with me. I could share stories with you about how I used to rip my brothers off with money all the time. I mean, I was a shrewd businessman at 10 I mean, people who knew me back then would say, if you would have continued that track, you'd be very rich and everyone would hate you. And that was probably true. I mean, I loved money. God's done a work in my heart to get me to that place. And it's been passages like this, where Jesus teaches something so clearly about how we are to live our, well, maybe not so clearly, because actually this is one of the most difficult passages in Luke, but... If we can walk our way through it, maybe it can become clear to us that Jesus wants to get a hold of deep parts of us so that he can, as we've been seen in this section, he can, we can live underneath his rule and his reign 
in our lives. So let me read this passage for us. We're going to be in chapter 16, verses 1 through 18, and then we'll work our way through it. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination to the, in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away, and for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do want to be overcome by your goodness and your mercy to us. We can sing to you today, forgiven, even though you are the O Holy One. And Lord, we pray that today your word will be alive and powerful to us. You know the things that we as a church body need to learn and grow through in this passage. And so we pray that you would teach us. We want to make ourselves yours. We want to open up our hearts. We want to receive. We want to linger in your presence today. So, Lord, be alive. Be powerful through your word and minister to us. Teach us. You know where we are as we gather here today. Minister to each one of us for your name's sake, for your glory, and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in chapter 15, we, we just got done through, Andrew was with us last week, and we talked about the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and I prefer to say the lost son. We, I don't know why we call it the prodigal, I guess because it's what the story's about, but the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And Jesus is talking a lot about what it means to be found as he continues in the passage before us today. And so this week and the next two weeks, we're going to be jumping around in these chapters in Luke. We're not going to be following it in succession. So, you, you know, you'll find us jumping in from passage to passage. We're going to try to bring a little bit of a focus to stewardship. 
Um, because each passage addresses it in some way. There are, some passages will be more than others. Today really addresses it. And so we're going to be thinking about stewardship of our lives, especially with the focus on money. And so we're going to be thinking about that today and in the weeks ahead. When we come into this passage right here, Luke chapter 16, commentators conclude that this is, one of, this is the most difficult passage in the book of Luke. And verse 8, they would say, is the most difficult verse in the book of Luke. And I don't want to just oversimplify things, but I think there's a way of working through this passage that makes it very understandable. And that's what my goal is today. Now, in contrast to chapter 15, as we come into chapter 16, look at verse 1. Jesus is now talking to his disciples. And so, back in chapter 15, we had the more of the masses that were there. In uh, chapter 15, verse 1. I mean, chapter 14, we have verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Then chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. And so, he tells them this parable. Well, now in chapter 16, verse 1, he says to his disciples. Now, we need to understand, though, look at chapter 16, verse 14. Even though he's talking to his disciples, the Pharisees are listening in. And so they're going to have something to say. And so it's very important to understand what they're going to have something to say about. It's going to be, the, Luke says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. So whatever they're going to hear is going to lead to ridicule of Jesus. They're going to be scoffing at him. So Jesus is talking to the disciples. The Pharisees are listening in. The Pharisees are not happy with what Jesus says. So what is it that Jesus says? I want to break this passage down into two parts. And the first part is faithfulness in our use of, and I'm going to use words very clearly, faithfulness in our use of God's money. So you're holding in your hands or you got it in your lap or somewhere in your Bible. This right here, whatever is yours, we ultimately need to understand this is God's. And so what does it mean to be faithful in our use of God's money? And so that's going to be verses 1 through 13. Verse 14 is going to be a bridge. And that's going to take us into the second part of this passage, which is faithfulness in our obedience to God's word. So 14 is going to be a bridge. Where the Pharisees are going to respond to what Jesus said about faithfulness with regards to our use of God's money. It's going to be a bridge where Jesus is then going to go directly for the heart. And he's going to go right after what the real root of the problem is. It's not just their use of money. It's who they are. And so faithfulness in our use or our obedience of God's word. So let's look first of all. At their faithfulness in the use of God's money in verses 1 through 8. The, the situation is really simple. You can find it in verses 1 through 3. There's two characters. There's a rich man who's later referred to as the master. And then there's the manager. Some of your Bibles may say steward. And so you've got these two characters. And we don't have a lot of information, which is true of oftentimes these stories that Jesus tells. But there's an accusation. The master is accusing the manager of mismanaging his funds. The words in the ESV are wasting his possession. So you've got this master who's entrusted to the manager certain funds. And the manager has been wasting. It doesn't tell us how he's been wasting them. But he's referred to as dishonest. Or the dishonest manager or the unfaithful steward. So whatever he's been doing is under the table. It's in disregard for the master. And it is hurting 
the master. This, this is causing the master harm. So the master, the, the, the rich owner, confronts him and says in verse 2, what is this I hear about you? Turn in your account. In other words, your, your job has just been terminated. I can, you are not to be trusted. You are bringing harm to me. Now, what's interesting, though, is in this particular account, again, we don't know all the details, but the manager doesn't say, well, wait a second. I'm calling my, you can talk to my lawyer. No, he, he accepts the wrongdoing. It, it, it's just like the manager just assumes that this is true. In verse 3, the manager says to himself, what shall I do? I've been caught. I'm in trouble. And he's got a, he's got a, a problem, a dilemma, because losing this job is going to lead him to try to seek other employment. And it looks like his only option is hard labor. And he's saying, I don't want to do that. I don't think I'm able. My hands are soft, so to speak. The other option is to beg. And he says, I don't want to do that either. And so he concocts a plan. And so as we look at the plan that he puts together in verses 5 through 7 is where we really begin to see. In verse 4 he says, I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, when my job comes to an end, people may receive me into their houses. I'm going to leverage my position right now, and my next move is going to ensure my future. So he acts kindly to the master's debtors and puts them in a position of reducing their debts in order to advantage his future. So all this has been entrusted to him, and now he's using it to advantage his Future. He's hoping that by being kind to these debtors, he's going to get something in return. So notice the debts that are owed. He calls them in one by one. How much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil. So, he, so notice that the, the amount that is owed is not given in terms of money, but in the commodity. Okay, the amount of whatever that material good is. And the other one comes in. And how much do you owe? A hundred uh, measures of wheat for the one. And then a hundred measures of oil and a hundred measures of wheat. So it's given in the commodity, not necessarily in a dollar or whatever the currency is, amount. Then we also see that the debt is reduced. In verse 6, the hundred measures of oil is take your bill and write 50. It's cut in half at least in the commodity. And then with the 100 measures of wheat, take your bill, write 80. And so it's reduced 25% or 20% or whatever that is, whoever the math people are out there. It's still a significant amount. There, but notice, the reduction of the amount is not standard. It's not like, well, cut it in half, cut it in half, cut it in half, cut it in half. And so all of this is important because we aren't really certain what the manager is doing, but he's doing something that's going to be commended in the end. That's why I want to point all of this out. And so commentators will, will try to deal with this passage and they, they assume that he probably renegotiated what was coming to him. In other words, we learned about tax gatherers last week. They had a certain amount that they had to raise and they just ripped people off and just took right off the top for all that. Well, what was this manager doing? How was he able to reduce these bills? It could have been that he was taking what was his in order to secure his future. It could be that he was just renegotiating the interest. I mean, many of us know what it's like to go out and buy a home. And if you, let's say you buy a home for $200,000, which I know is unthinkable in this particular economy right now. But let's say you buy a home for $200,000. 
By the time you pay that off over 30 years, I mean, I don't know, at 6% interest or 3% interest or whatever, it's a lot of money, isn't it? The, the house itself is the commodity. How much the bank actually receives for that could be a zillion dollars. In fact, if I own a home for 10 years and then I resell it to someone else and the bank has that same home that they continue to own, they renegotiate the interest terms with this new client. Again, they're getting all this interest coming in. You follow me on this? I mean, the bank makes a lot of money off one single home if they were able to hold on to that for life alone. So when you have to short sale it or you have to you know, get out from underneath that loan, the loan officer within the parameters of the bank has a lot of freedom in how they negotiate that amount. You follow me on this? And so the manager probably was put in some kind of situation like that where there was a commodity that was out there that was owed and he just renegotiates it and he does it in a way that I think ultimately is a win-win situation. It's win-win. The debtors walk away and they're thrilled. It's like, man, this is great. And the master is watching this and he's not bothered by it either. He, he sees it as great too. It seems like it's a win-win situation. And that's what catches the attention of the master in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, this is the most difficult verse, commentators will say, in the book of Luke. Why? Because it seems like the master is commending dishonesty. But I think when we step back from the parable, it's not that the master is commending dishonesty. He's called the dishonest steward. Why? Because he's losing his job for dishonesty. But the master is commending a brainstorm, a win-win situation, the way this manager took these goods that were entrusted to him and used them in such a way that it ensured his future. If this was against the master, I think the master would say, off with your head. I've had it. Not only do you lose your job, I'm going to take you for everything you are worth. I'm taking you down big time. You will never see the light of day. But the master doesn't. He steps back and he praises this manager, this steward, and what he's done. The, in other words, the dishonest manager word or the unrighteous steward part is the reason why the steward lost his job. But now he's become the shrewd steward. Now we know why he was hired in the first place for his job. He's good at what he does. Making friends of the debtors and pleasing his master at the same time. Now I don't want to oversimplify this. I'm explaining it in this kind of way. But if you read some commentators, they will say there are six possible meanings for this. <laughs> six possible meanings. Just tell me what you think. I'm telling you what I think right now. I'm not working through the six possible meanings. This makes sense to me. The master praises him because he uses this money in a way that that's advantages his future. Now, here's the second part of the difficulty of verse 8. Because the second part of verse 8 it almost sounds like Jesus is now talking. And so is now Jesus commending this move as well. 
And I think Jesus is in the same way the, the, the master is praising this, this shrewd act that took place. Jesus is now, I think the words are morphing into Jesus' words. I think this happens at various times in the Gospels where all of a sudden the disciples and Jesus become a part of the parable. We looked at one a few weeks back where it was the same thing where all of a sudden they became a part of what Jesus was telling. And it goes on in verse 8 and says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, let's step back and look at this parable. Watch what this this honest manager did. Obviously, not a part of the kingdom. Let's watch this, the words of our sons of this world. Let's watch this son of the world and watch what they do with possessions to ensure something about their future. There's something about that that sons of light may need to learn from not the dishonesty that's why he was fired he's being praised for this brainstorm win-win situation that he just pulled off sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than sons of light and i tell you my make friends for yourself see see now we know jesus is speaking and i tell you make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth now this last phrase is difficult don't even know what to do with it so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. But here's the point. How how we interpret that is confusing to me, but here's the point. What Jesus is saying is use, everybody's got a dollar or something in your hands, use this in such a way that you are thinking eternally about it. Use it in such a way that you're advantaging your future. And what comes to my mind is things like store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But the point here is Jesus saying, you know what? You can make friends with this. You you can actually use this in amazing ways to catch the attention of people. The wealthy owner is not a pushover here. He fired that manager previously, but now he's commending him. Because of what he's done. And so Jesus, who now I think is morphing in the second part of verse 8 into the words of Jesus. He himself seems to be commending the man even more. The manner in which people in this world wisely use their money. For advantage over against the way people who are citizens of heaven choose to do. Jesus is saying, I think, basically, let's step back. Let's look at the way the sons of the world handle their money and let's see if we can learn something from that. And so he's going to give some principles now that are going to flow out of this. So in verse 9, we have that first principle. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of your unrighteous wealth. In other words, use your money, which is not going to last, to bless people in order to ensure your future reward. Use what God, and I'm calling it God's money, use what God entrusts to you to bless people. Store up your treasures in heaven. Do something with your money that is going to be ultimately be something that draws people to the Lord. Be generous with people. Be generous with them. This is all God's. So use it in such a way that you befriend people. Be generous. And I told you just uh, maybe last week or a couple weeks back when I had the guys I play basketball with that don't know the Lord, and we went to Taps for their $1.99 burger, and I just paid the whole bill. It didn't cost me hardly anything. Those guys to this day have never forgotten that. 
And now I'm trying to leverage that in some of my relationships with them to go a step further. Why? So I can talk to them about Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Leverage. Use this to leverage. He goes on in verse 10. And he has some more to say. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Good or bad stewardship of a little will result in good or bad stewardship of much. Character is character. And Jesus is saying, you're entrusted with so much, so be wise in how you use it. If you can be faithful in a little bit, then you can be faithful in a lot too. And so there's a principle there. God is entrusting And he entrusts for reasons because people can handle certain responsibility. I remember my first job was at the only Derwiner schnitzel east of the Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama. And I remember my first job was not the grill, it was drinks. And if you didn't screw up drinks, you got to move up to the fries. And if you didn't screw up the fries, you got to go to the grill. And if you didn't screw up the grill, they put you on the cash register. He who is faithful in drinks (laughs) will be faithful at the cash register. Little by little increments. And so there's a sense in which you get to move up in that world because of what's been entrusted to you. Do you understand that God is entrusting things to you? Gifts that build up the church. Financial resources. Time. Your very next breath is given to you by the Lord, and it's to be stewarded for him. Once I had a friend, and I had a counseling practice in his sports medicine clinic. I may have told you about this once before, but but one day I was talking to him. I said, what's it like to have so much money? And he said, you don't want the responsibility. And when he told me that, I knew there was a man who understood that every dollar he had had been given to him. And was to be stewarded. Jesus is saying, be generous. And realize if you're faithful a little, then God might entrust more to you. He goes on in verses 11 and 12 and says this. If then you have not been faithful in your unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? If you can't even be faithful in something like this right here, what about more important things? It's interesting, even with the, the office of overseer or elder in 1 Timothy 3, it says if one can't manage his own household, how can he manage the household of God? And Jesus is saying here, if you can't be faithful with this right here, how can other true riches be given to you? And so there are certain principles that are coming out of this. Jesus is saying very clearly that there's, there's a responsibility that we have with something like this. He goes on. In verse 13, and he adds another principle, no servant can serve two masters for either either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. And I think that what Jesus is ultimately saying is your true proof of your worship of, of God is what you do with your money. That you don't own it, that you don't hoard it but that you're releasing this with an eye to the kingdom. You're using it to make friends. 
you're stewarding it well. And as more is given to you, you steward it even just the same because character is character. That you understand if you're responsible with this, true riches will be given to you for you to steward those things as well. Because you can't worship this in the Lord. And one of the easiest ways to realize who we worship, this or the Lord, is our willingness to let go of this and to use it for something way bigger than what this world has to offer. Now, we need to move forward because it's going to be important where Jesus goes with this. Now, remember in verse 14, it's a bridge verse. So we're going to find the Pharisees scoffing here. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. This is not the first time Jesus has experienced this. He's teaching God's word. And I think that till Jesus comes back, I want to be faithful in proclaiming the truth of God's word, regardless of what ridicule might come my way. Jesus models that for us. You don't back down from truth. And so the Pharisees are ridiculing him, but it's very interesting to watch what Jesus is going to do. Now, it says here, they ridiculed him, and Jesus is going to say, um, no, in verse 14, it says, they ridiculed him because they're lovers of money. And so whatever Jesus said is not sitting well with them. They don't like what he just said about you can't serve God and money, and it's giving it away, it's how you handle it, stewarding it, it's God. They don't like all that. And so they're ridiculing him. Jesus is now going to go to the very core of their heart, though. Actually, the problem is not the way they're handling their money. The problem is their love for God or lack thereof. Their preoccupation with the law, which has been just developed into rule after rule after rule, is not really about honoring the Lord above all. They had fabricated a system that made it all about themselves and the maintenance of their cushy lives. The law had been built around them to make them look good, not to bring them into a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is now going to expose them. It's very interesting to watch how he exposes them. What Jesus says next is not what I expect Jesus to say next. The Pharisees were scoffing him. They're ridiculing him because they loved money And so you think Jesus might go back at the money thing. But notice notice what he does. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law, the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. When I read verse 18, I said, what in the world? Where'd that come from? And ultimately, this passage is not focused on the issue of divorce. Jesus is going deep with them. He's getting beyond the money thing. And he's trying to show them money always gets down to the heart. It's always going to get down to that. You can't serve God and money. And so now, because they're scoffing at him, he's going to go deep with them so they can recognize what they need to see. The Pharisees are justifying them way, th- themselves in the ways they live before people. And at first glance, it's just odd that Jesus goes there. But he's going. What, what's really going on with the Pharisees is they are rejecting Jesus' kingdom teaching. Remember, we've been, we've been working our way through this. Everything must be under the rule and reign of Jesus. Jesus' priorities must become our priorities. 
This is about what Jesus is doing in this world. And the Pharisees are not ridiculing him about his teaching about money. They're ridiculing him about the teaching of the kingdom, ultimately. Jesus is directing his word right to their heart attitude about money. Why do they give? They give to be noticed by others. And so when they use their money and give it to the Lord, what is it all about? Hey, one big fat dollar bill here. Watch. Offering praise coming. Mm-mm-mm-mm. It's all to be seen by people around them. And Jesus is trying to get at the heart of that. This is not about kingdom values. They don't view their giving as a sacrifice to God. But because they don't even really, really care about people. And so passages like Hosea 6, 6, passages like Micah 6, 6 through 8 are trying to get at that heart of the matter that your devotion is not to God because you don't even care about people around you. You just want to be highly esteemed by them. You just want to be exalted by them. And they had set up that system so that it could work for them. They set up a system where their heart and their actions could not be condemned. People just said, whoa, you are praiseworthy. Instead of them moving people towards the Lord to give him the praise, they fit within the boundaries of their religious system. And we've been seeing this throughout. Look at chapter 10, verse 29. Just real quick, just looking at a a series of passages. In chapter 10, verse 29, notice the words the way this begins. But he... Desiring to justify himself. Notice how that could be different. But he longing to be under the rule and the reign of Jesus. But he longing to make Jesus' priorities his priorities. Uh Uh-uh. But he seeking to justify himself. We could also look at chapter 11. Verses 39 to 41. We've seen a series of these things. And the Lord said to him, the Pharisee, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. It's all this exterior, trying to please people kind of look. And Jesus says, this is about kingdom priorities. You're not even rejecting my teaching about money. You're rejecting what the kingdom is all about. And so Jesus is going right for the heart. But notice Jesus goes on, and he wants to just make it very clear to them. At the end of that verse, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What you are living for is all the wrong things. It's an abomination to God. Their system worked for them, but it was despicable in the sight of God. And it was the path to death. And therefore, whatever they actually gave was not even pleasing to the Lord because it was all about exalting themselves and making themselves look good. Now, notice what's going on here. Jesus is giving very important teaching about giving. The Pharisees are scoffing or ridiculing him. Jesus is walking into their hearts to expose their lack in understanding the true meaning of giving, their lack, ultimately, of embracing kingdom priorities. And so Jesus wants to take it really further now in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. 
And everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What is Jesus saying here? He's reinforcing again a new age is dawn. All the promises of the Old Testament, everything has been pointing to Messiah, the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And he's now in your midst. The kingdom is here. Jesus is proclaiming that kingdom. And the Pharisees need to get with the program. John was the forerunner. Jesus is the king. And that king is going to go to the cross and rule and reign at the right hand of Jesus, I mean the right hand of the Father, until he comes back again to rule and reign on this earth. But he's nonetheless the king. And Jesus uses these interesting words and everyone is forcing their way into it. Pharisees, get with the program. Look what's happening. People are coming. Another way to translate this particular odd phrase of everyone forcing their way into it would be this idea of all are urged insistently to come in. All are urged insistently. Everyone's either forcing or people are saying, come, come in. Either way, people are passionately going for it or passionately being invited in. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you got to get with the program. It's all passing you by and you're missing it. The reason you're ridiculing this particular, this particular teaching about money is because you just don't get what God is all about. You, you've set up your little system to protect yourself and to live for yourself and to exalt yourself amongst the people. But Jesus is saying the kingdom is here. And it's not that the law is being done away with. It's going to be fulfilled. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Just think about the dot on the letter I. It's easier for the heaven and earth to pass away than any of this law to pass away. The king is here. He's the fulfillment of all of his law. He's the authority of this law. And he's to be followed. They oftentimes criticize in Jesus that he doesn't take the law seriously. And Jesus is constantly saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law. Everything was pointing to me. And then what happens in verse 18? When I read the passage, it was the shocker for me. It's like, how did Jesus get there? And he talks about divorce. Jesus gives an example. When I say the law will endure, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one little dot of the law to to not be fulfilled. He's going to give an example now. And he goes for the example of divorce. Living in the kingdom means that we're going to continue to look to God for life. We're going to continue to follow him, continue to obey him. And I think the example that Jesus sets out there probably goes right to their heart again. We aren't told why Jesus does it. Remember, Jesus looks right into their heart. He knows what's going on. And there are different rabbis, even in this particular time, that point out that Pharisees had become very permissive about divorce, even for very trivial reasons. Rabbi Hillel taught that divorce could be justified by a wife spoiling her husband's dinner. I didn't like that. I told you to use the Tony Creel seasoning. Not your mama's recipe. Tony Creel's seasoning. I don't like it. Divorce. Rabbi Akaba would permit divorce if a man found someone prettier than his wife. Woo! Done with you. On to new things. They had taken it lightly and all of this was making a mockery 
of the law. But they built barriers so that even when they were making a mockery of God, they were still highly esteemed amongst the people. And God said, that's detestable. That's detestable that you would live in that way. The issue is ultimately their hearts. It doesn't matter whether it was money. It doesn't matter whether it's God's word. The issue was ultimately their hearts. And that's where Jesus goes. They simply want to justify themselves in the sight of men. You all think I'm good, don't you? Good. All right. Life's good. Jesus says, that's not ultimately what matters. What matters is your relationship with me. And so as we work our way through this kind of passage and we think about our faithfulness in our use of God's money, in our faithfulness and our obedience to God's word, the reason I wanted you to have this out today is because as we close in prayer, I want you to hold your money in one hand and your Bible in the other. And just think about it. In what ways do you actually maybe worship this? And it's this and then God somewhere below that. Or maybe you haven't thought about how you can use this in a way to be a part of winning the world. It's amazing missionary endeavors throughout the years have been so humanitarian to the world. And it's it's made a light. Build a well and people will come. And people have used financial resources to the advantage of the gospel throughout time. But maybe there's ways that God's working in your heart to think about this. But, but then also think about God's word. Maybe you manipulate God's word to fit into your world just a little bit better, like the Pharisees were doing. Just building a little religious world around them so that they could look good but not really have to submit to the rule and reign of Jesus, not really make Jesus' priorities their priorities. And so as we hold both of these in our hand and we think about the future, we want to heed Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does it mean to do that with this? Steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does it mean to do that with this? Steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so as we bow for prayer and you hold these two things in your hand, Just talk to the Lord for a moment about these. What is the Lord teaching you right now? Ask him. Lord, I thank you for people all around this room who demonstrate by their lives that your priorities are their priorities. That they are yielding their lives to your rule in your reign. But Lord, I know all of us have the parts of our hearts and the parts of our lives, the parts of our financial portfolios, the parts of the Bible that we have a difficult time yielding to. So Lord, help us, be merciful to us, and help us to see those ways, and help us to grow in our stewardship of all that you've given us. Lord, help each one of us here 
in our daily lives to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work for your glory. Lord, help us to know that's where life is found. Help us to learn it's not found in a Hummer. It's found in the work that you're doing in this world, the work that you're doing in us. And so, Lord, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth in our lives as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.